0: All right, welcome to the Asking Why podcast. Um, I'm your host Clint Davis. This is episode thirty, so we made it. We made it to thirty, which is a huge accomplishment. Um, So thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading uh, the podcast. You know, I we got the notification this last week as well that we hit ten thousand downloads. So that's pretty awesome. Um, We're excited about the fact that we've hit that. It's a pretty good milestone as far as marketing and being able to get people to sponsor. So if you're out there and you listen to this and You know you want to sponsor the podcast and and um get what your business is or get your message out um we'd be willing to talk about that and be open to kind of saying brought to you by whoever um and this is what they offer and this is their resources on the podcast um so give me an email at clint daviscounseling at gmail.com and let me know if you're interested in that um so yeah 30 30th episode i'm excited about it it's just gonna be me today i don't have a guest um I've been told to take some time and people wanna hear me talk about some stuff. So it's hard to believe for me, but I'm gonna just talk through some issues today. So today our topic is gonna to be around um, dealing with narcissism and borderline personality disorder. But to get there, I wanna talk a little bit about boundaries and attachment, because I think that is, we have to understand where, where people are when they, you know I don't wanna look at people as a, as a problem. And so a person with borderline or narcissistic behavior You know, they're not a monster. I had a professor in college who said that all the time. Like, there's no such thing as monsters. Even Hitler, you know, was created by a family system. Um, Now, sometimes there is broken biology and there are people who can't feel and they can't share and they have zero empathy. Um, But that's pretty rare. A lot of times it's just people's family systems and and their trauma and their history. That doesn't alleviate their responsibility. You know, people still have responsibility for their behavior. But it helps us who are engaging with them and dealing with them or being abused by them. To depersonalize it. I think one of the things we have to do um, to heal in, in, and forgive is to depersonalize our pain and what's happened to us. And what I mean by that is we have to move it out of being our fault and our responsibility and be able to see that the abuser, the person being aggressive, the person being offensive, um, it's their responsibility and their behavior and their choice and how to respond out of their pain has nothing to do with us. And so there's kind of an, a there's a restoration therapy model by Terry Hargrave that I love um, that kind of looks at primary attachment issues from the idea of, of love and trust. And so, if you think about your own life today, and you think about how you grew up and what family you grew up in, you you know you learn to attach to them one way or the other. And if you didn't attach, then you formed what we call unhealthy attachments. Um, and so, attaching right, if you think about um, something you're going to attach together, your hands attach together and your fingers cross and you're, and you're holding yourself. Um, and you're holding your hands like that, those cross those attach those connect. And that's what we want for our children. But this idea of attachment is relatively new in human history that we, you know, doing studies of children, how their parents uh, treated them and how it was going to turn out and affect them. It's ultimately, you know, really 60 or 70 years old. We, we haven't been able to, study and research like we have been able to then. And even that's developed, man, so much in the last 10, 15 years. So things are changing rapidly as we're able to study the brain and as we're able to understand neurology. So I say all that to say that when you, when you grow up in a house, um, where, you know, there's generational brokenness, generational sin, parent after parent after parent doesn't understand attachment, doesn't understand children. They're doing the best they can. They're, they're trying to just survive in the world then emotionally and spiritually, it really can affect, you know, the way we grow up. And when I see adults with negative behaviors or unhealthy behaviors or coping, you know, it's like, I want to look back on their childhood and figure out, well, what happened that caused this? Because I don't see people as, um, you know, I don't think people wake up and cheat on their spouse or get into addiction or start drinking or doing drugs or whatever it is they're struggling with anger. It didn't just happen out of nowhere or in a vacuum. Most of the time it, it's always been there. It's always been brewing, or it's always been a thing they've struggled with. And it came from some childhood issue. And this isn't, again, to blame our parents and put the responsibility all on them, but it's to help us to understand that it started somewhere. And if we don't go back, we can't move forward. If we don't go back and look at our past, you know, people say, move on, get over it. And it's like, well, that sounds nice, but it's a lot easier said than done. You you have to go back and look at the origin story of your life and And what we're talking about is a narrative view you know a narrative being a story and when as adults we we have these narratives these beliefs in our lives that tell us who we are and how the world works and who god is and we learn those very very early on and so if we look at attachment styles we know that when children are born they ideally begin to form secure trusting attachments to their parents or carryover you know they maybe grow up with a grandparent or one parent but the reality is that's very few people and we know that neuroscience and neurobiology research has increasingly demonstrated the importance of connection in our relationships. So we're learning now, and we've talked about this on other podcasts, that you need to connect with your kid way more than you need to parent them or discipline them or redirect them, especially early on. Um, and so while our reliance on others is, is really heightened and we need it in infancy and childhood... We, we don't just stop there. We, we continue to need it and seek it in relationships to feel connected until we, we die. We need that connection. And I think the answer to a lot of our problems and a lot of our shame is connection. A lot of um, addiction that we work with, man, when we get people in groups and we get people in community and we get them connected, then their need for alcohol or drugs or pornography or whatever it is. It lowers because they're getting met with connection, they're getting attachment, they're getting serotonin, they're getting the right things, and so through this idea and understanding of the need for attachment, there's several theories that are out there um, that we use as therapists, and that we can look at people's childhoods because we know that however they attach as children is a lot of times how they tra- attach as you know romantic adults, and so you know we we laugh because we're like you're, you know we see people uh, a male or female who's in bad relationships or bad relationships or maybe abusive ones, it's like in some ways you're the common denominator. It doesn't mean you deserve to get abused, but if you have bad attachment, then you don't know what you need and how to ask for it. And, um, you end up kind of replicating that throughout your adult life. And so I'm going to go through a little bit of the attachment styles. So the the main one obviously is the one we all want to try to have is a secure attachment. Um, and this is on a grid. You can look it up or Google it, but a secure attachment um, means the parents are connected and they're attuned to the child's emotions and needs. which means you have to understand your own emotions and needs as a parent. You have to know that you're loved and that you're worthy and that you're valuable and that you're known. And then you have to feel secure and you have to feel safe in your own body and in your own world. Um, and so many of us as parents, we have kids before we address that, before we heal from that, before we can process those emotions and those needs. And then we start trying to work those things out with our kids. And when in reality we need to be full and ready. And as Christians, you know, the good thing is, is we have God tell us our worth and value and who we are, and that we are loved and we are valued. and We are worthy, not our children. Our children are not the thing that should be validating our experience and who we are. And so if you're connected and attuned to your child and you see their emotional needs and you see their physical needs and you meet those, then, you know, they grow up to be able to empathize with others and and set boundaries because they know who they are. They know what they can get away with and what they can't. Um, and then they tend to be pretty stable and have meaningful relationships. So obviously, if you attach to your child and you teach them their worth and their value and, and that they're loved and you teach them they're secure, then they grow up in peace, right? They, they grow up in peace of who they are, not, not that everything's great and there's no struggle and there's no doubt and there's no fear. But in that fear, they know they're, they're secure. They have, you know, a God, they have parents who are there for them, who are walking with them. And so ultimately, that makes them be able to be secure in the world. The problem is many of us don't get that. And so the other attachment style is called avoidant. Um, and this is a lot of times, you know, where parents are emotional, they're un- unavailable. Uh, they tend to reject the kid a lot. Um, they tell their tell them their emotion, emotions are invalid and that their needs are invalid. So it may be a situation where the kid says, you know, I feel really scared. And a parent says, well, you shouldn't be scared or, you know, you know, my kids recently have, you know, Grady will wake up and or Jude will wake up and say, there's a monster in the room and there's a ghost or there's, you know, they'll make something up. And so we talk through that and I say, well, why do you think that is? And let me turn the lights on. Let's look, you know, okay, well, you know, do you think there's really a ghost? And they, well, no, there's no such thing as ghost, right? So, you know, what are you afraid of? What are you feeling? And we, and we work through that. It would be much more, uh, you know, convenient for me just to say, listen, there's not a ghost, go to sleep. Uh, that's what I want to do sometimes. Um, but the reality is, is to connect with them and, and meet with them is not easy. Uh, especially if I'm tired and if I'm hungry and if I haven't eaten and done my work, then it's much more complicated. And so we want to be, we want to look for this avoidant attachment where we're not negating their feelings, where we're validating them. Um, because if not, what happens is as kids grow up to, you know, they avoid close relationships or connection They, you know, they, they don't want to share with people. They don't want to share in relationships. They're the kids who are scared to express their feelings, their emotions, because what they've been taught is that it's not going to get met. No one's going to hear me. No one's going to see me, um, and they they become very rigid and critical and intolerant of others because they just they don't want to deal with it. They want to have control. And so you got secure, which is good. You got avoidant, which ends up being those things. And then you have ambivalent. So parents who are inconsistent, man, they just you know they're up and down, hot and cold, rules no rules, um, and then they they just violate boundaries. They're intrusive. They they are harsh in their communication. Um, you know they just kind of act nonchalant, but then go really hard with the emotions. And so that for kids that grow up in that, you know they feel very. Nervous and anxious um, because they don't know what they're going to get, and then when they do get it, you know the parent comes in, they let them off the hook, they let them off the hook, and then they come in and they're they're, you know, blowing up. So these adults, you know, usually are anxious and insecure, controlling themselves. They blame others for everything. They're really unpredictable in their own behavior, and then sometimes they can be really charming, even if they're doing all those other things. So if you struggle with some of that, you have to look back and go, okay, well, were my parents consistent? You know, were they harsh? Um, And then the other one is disorganized. So these are the kids who were ignored um, and the parents were just oblivious that the kid had needs. And then um, this can also be if parents were really, really scary or very traumatizing. Um, And this leads to adults who, you know, have chaotic behavior or explosive, abusive. And we're going to talk about this one specifically because I think this is where that narcissism and borderline kind of comes from. And then they lack, you know, they have a lack of trust when they're seeking closeness with others. So I see this in my office. These are the ones that are really hard to talk about in therapy because, you know, they don't want to be honest. They don't want to share. They need to work. They want to work. But man, it's very, very scary for them to open up. And then lastly, um, we have reactive. So extremely unattached or dysfunctional. You know, the the parents just, you know, react to everything that happens with don't care, you know, or chaos. And these adults typically, um, you know, they can't establish positive relationships and it's frequently very misdiagnosed because obviously it's disorganized. The, I mean, uh, reactive, the, the parents are very dysfunctional. And so they, they don't know, you know, they can't find a firm footing as a clinician or as somebody trying to help this person. Cause they're kind of all over the place, um, themselves. And so I want you to think about that because that is gonna, you know, we have these talks about boundaries and, and I tell my therapist all the time, you know, when I'm speaking places, a lot of times as therapists, we want to, we're going to talk about these elaborate things and counter transference and, uh, you know, big words, differentiation and, and all those things are important. But what I have found is for the average of us, you know, like me, who doesn't know much, um, we want to, you know, we need to learn basics. And so if I'm learning jujitsu or if I'm, you know, learning how to my, help my son play violin or, you know, if I'm doing something that's completely new to me. Obviously, after they learn the basics and for attachment and boundaries, you know there, there's some basic things we got to start with. And so they're, you know, out of those attachment styles. If you don't understand your attachment style, then you're not going to be able to set boundaries very well. You're not going to be able to um, to say where I end and where other people begin. And that that's really what a boundary is. A boundary is something that allows you to go, "Hey, I'm upset or I'm emotional." then that doesn't have anything to do with other people or other people are upset and emotional about something. And that doesn't necessarily have to do with me. And I need to figure out what I'm responsible for and what they're responsible for. And I need to stop there in so many of us, because we have bad attachment, meaning we don't know how to connect. We're very scared of connection or we overly connect. I mean, that's probably, you know, my, I'm a little anxious attachment. So my wife would laugh and, you know, it's like, I want to connect, I want to hug, I want to say, Hey, and if she's upset, I want to do that more and connect. And and, and in my panic, that can be, oh, well, I'm, I'm controlling that you feel loved. So now I feel safe. You know, I'll shower you with flowers and hugs and kisses and tell you, I love you if you're upset, because that'll make you feel better, which I'll feel better. And, you know, that's a boundary. So we have to be able to say, you know what, no, let me give you space. I'm going to let you feel how you feel, that doesn't really have anything to do with me. Although I'm here and available to, to help you and walk you walk alongside you. I'm not going to, my boundary is I'm not going to take that on and think it's my fault or my job to, to move you out of those emotions and change those emotions. So there's, there's, let's talk about, there's two ways of looking at types of boundaries. So there are just general, like type types. So physical boundaries, right? So you can touch me, I can touch you. Um, we teach those to our kids. We say who can touch them, who can't. Um, there's a whole podcast on that. There's sexual boundaries. So we have to have these in marriage. What do you like? What do you not like? You know, what are these, what are things that we're going to do and not going to do um, emotional boundaries? What are we going to deal with? How, what am I going to put up with? Um, you know, what are inappropriate topics? What are, what's the amount of emotional, you know, emotional energy I'm going to put towards this. Um, these are the things that, you know, we, we have to look at, um, and there's spiritual and religious boundaries. And these things can be, um, what church are we going to go to? What denomination are we going to go on? How much are we going to tithe? Um, you know, are we going to do what our family does? And then there's financial and material boundaries. You know, how are we going to spend money? What, um, what kind of house are we going to buy? What is our retirement plan? Time boundaries, how much time are we going to give to things? How much um, time are we going to spend on, oh, we're going to play baseball this season. Okay, well, then we know that's going to take us away on the weekends. We know that that's going to get you know, take us away from seeing our friends for a while. I mean, there's a lot of memes going around right now because it's baseball season and people are like, see you in, you know, nine weeks or nine months or whatever it is. Um, and then lastly, non-negotiable boundaries. You know, there are things that are not going to change, that are not flexible, that we just can't do. And so i'll run through those real quick physical sexual emotional spiritual financial time and non-negotiable and the reason i go over these is because a lot of times we, we don't realize that we don't have any boundaries around these things we have not you know looked at how much time we're going to spend with people or how much time we're going to spend working out so if you're going to let's say it's exercise well great exercise is good but are you going to work out two hours every afternoon? Are you going to work out every afternoon? Well, that means you're not going to be able to see your kids or you're not going to be able to spend time with your wife. So we have to negotiate these with the people in our life in order to make sure there's connection. So, going back to that attachment, if you don't have healthy attachments, then you can't sound, set healthy boundaries because you're not trying to reach the same goal as your friend or your partner or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your husband you're going from a totally different understanding of why you're trying to set these boundaries based on your attachment style. And so that's why I said originally, you have to kind of go back and look at your family and look at your history and say, man, how did I learn to get my needs met and to find connection? And if I don't want connection because I have poor attachment, well then I'm going to be spending time at the gym or at work. I don't want to be at home with my spouse. I don't want to spend time playing with my kids. That makes me anxious. That makes me nervous. That makes me feel unsettled. I'd rather be isolated in a way. Well, guess what? That's going to cause some major problems in your family. And that's going to teach your kids boundaries and your kids attachment styles and on and on the cycle goes. So we have got to stop the cycle of abuse, stop the cycle of neglect. You know, we've got to learn to set healthy boundaries and have good attachment. Um, But it, it doesn't start if you don't start it. And so those are the types Now I want to look at how we do those. So there's there's kind of three major things. There's rigid, there's diffuse, and there's health. Then there's clear boundaries, healthy boundaries. If you think about it like a dotted line, um, a rigid boundary is you know very tight. No one can get in or out. There's little dots that are tiny. There's little space, but not much. And it's it's you know those boundaries are rigid. So people are law, right? If you're if you're religious. Um, you know, the Pharisees, for example, were very rigid in their boundaries. You couldn't take certain steps. You couldn't heal on the Sabbath. You couldn't walk 10 feet. You know, you, you had to follow the law 100% of the time. It didn't matter how you felt. It didn't matter what your experience was. It doesn't matter if there's somebody drowning, you have to follow the law. Same thing in our family systems. It's like, it doesn't matter if you relate late because you got a flat tire. It doesn't matter if you didn't make an A because that teacher wasn't listening to you. I'm not listening to any of that. You make an A, you do this thing. And so when we parent that way, we don't take, you know, into consideration our kids needs or their special circumstances, and then they don't get their needs met and they don't know how to connect. Then there's diffuse boundaries. So diffuse is, you know, very wide spaces in the, in the circle, in the dotted lines, and people can get in and out very easily. It's that inconsistent parent. um, It's partying. It's letting you do whatever you want to. um, And everything's emotional. Um, everything is debatable or negotiated and you really never know what you're going to get. And so that can lead, you know, that's that's there's no law. There's no structure. And what we want is a balance. So think about it as like a rubber band. If you have a rubber band and you stretch it out, it comes back to the same shape. And so you want to have those healthy boundaries. So what are some ways to to set these boundaries in our own life? If we look and we say, man, I just, every time, you know, I get on the phone with my, my mom, I just stay on there 30 extra minutes than I want to and she continues to talk and talk and talk and she says things about my sister about my cousin she tells me about her problems she never asked me for what i'm doing you know these are things i hear all the time and the question is well why do you stay on the phone (laughs) right i mean why do we stay on the phone in situations where we're being emotionally triggered and upset and taken advantage of why do we work in jobs and take things from bosses that we shouldn't take Why do we allow our husbands or our wives to be lazy or to step on our toes or to yell at our kids? These are boundary issues. And these are things that we have to learn to set in our lives, to say no, to say stop, to ask for what we need. But it's really hard. And one of the things I've learned in therapy is, man, I'm still learning it, but just learning to ask for what we need clearly and concisely. Right? Not being passive aggressive or aggressive, but being able to say, hey, I need you to do this please. And then letting that person say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then going from there. But a lot of times, because we want to, you know, protect ourselves, or we have bad attachment or bad boundaries, we'll kind of be passive. It's like, hey, uh, I really would love to go on a date night. And I'd love to go to this restaurant, if you want to. And if you don't want to, it's perfectly fine. And then the person's like, yeah, no, I don't want to go there. Let's go here. And then that happens over and over and over. And you never get what you need. And then you get mad and blow up. And the other person's like, well, you totally told me that you didn't care and I could pick. And then you're mad at them, you're like, well, you should have seen through that or you should have been selfless or you should have done this and that. And it's like, well, that might be true, but we have to learn to be able to ask for what we need and leave it there. And so here are some tips for setting healthy boundaries. So the first thing you can do is like, right, we, we have to look at all this stuff, learn all this stuff, process it. It's not as easy as just one, two, three but that's how we're going to talk about it today. Um, but let's say you're in therapy. You've looked at your childhood. you looked at your family system. You're realizing, oh, man, I, I connect differently than my spouse or my friends or my coworkers. I need to deal with this. I need to learn healthy attachment. I need to heal. You know, one of the amazing things about God is that, you know, he's our father, our mother, our parent. And so through therapy and through the word and through good community, we can reparent ourselves to learn who we are, to change our beliefs about ourselves. and And that's when we really start to do the work. That's a whole nother podcast. But so start our day daily uh, with limit setting. right. Know from the start what we're capable of taking on. So just in the morning, establishing this is as far as I'm going to go in this situation or with this thing. And I know that. And then acknowledge um, what you gain when you set boundaries. So in in addiction, we say play the end of the tape, read the end of the story, right? So if I'm going to say no to this thing or no to my coworker, no to my husband, what do I get out of that? right this allows us to recenter and remain committed you know even when things get tough because when we we don't know why we're doing something and we don't we haven't previously kind of established it and set ourselves up for it then in the moment in the stress we're like oh why am i doing this this is hard they're pushing back on my boundary never mind you can do it or never mind i'll do it or you know i'll take that on it's fine you know i'm like that with clients it's like i say i'm not going to take new clients i'm not going to take anybody you know anytime soon and then I don't, I don't stay on top of that. And then I get a referral and it's like, well, I really like working with that person or that church really wants me to see this, or they need this special thing. And then I say, okay. And then I got to find somewhere to put them and that's not good for them. That's not good for me. And then I find myself going, man, I want to help my intentions are great, but I just violated my own boundary by saying yes. And that's not good for anybody. And so then the the more I'm established on why and how I'm doing it. And the more I focus on that, then I know, Oh man, that's, that's tough. I have a great staff. I need to refer them out. I'm not the only one, you know, so let's do it. So, I mean, same thing with taking hours and hours that I don't want, you know, I might have four or five clients in a day. Um, and let's say a couple cancel. Well, I could call somebody or somebody could call and I could put them in that space, but man, there's other things I need to take care of. And sometimes if I'm not paying attention and it's tough, you know, I I fill people in and then I don't get the things I need to be getting done which goes number three, defining our priorities. So one, start your day that way, thinking about it, acknowledge what you gain out of setting the boundaries and three, define your priorities, get clear on what you need, uh, what you want and what it would be nice to have. So if you're not looking at your vision and your goals for that day and, and, and looking at that for that week and that month and that year, then you're not gonna, you're not gonna know why you're doing what you're doing. Number four, then you have to communicate like we talked about earlier, clearly and directly and often so we have to tell people about our boundaries um that's our responsibility we can't assume that people are going to keep our boundaries if they don't know what they are so in a marriage if your husband's staying up late every night and you feel safe with him being in the bed with you then you have to clearly communicate hey you know i would really like for you to come to bed with me a couple times a night because that makes me feel safe and you know then he can say well, no, I don't want to do that because I have to stay up and work, and um, and I may not be able to, you know, to do those things. And you can say, okay, well, what's a compromise that we can make? Can you do that four times a night, you know, a week, and then th- these two nights you stay up and work out, whatever the thing is. But you, we are responsible for communicating that directly and clearly. Five, pay attention to your needs, and this is something. This is not pipe psychology as, as far as a, you're the center of all things, but we do have to like pay attention that. When things make us feel discomfort or overwhelmed or we start building resentment, you know, that is a sign that um, somebody or we have overreached our boundary. We have to pay attention to that. That doesn't mean we don't serve and we don't sacrifice and we don't, you know, love on others, but we have to pay attention that, you know, once we get, once we start getting, you know, uncomfortable and overwhelmed and, and resentment, resentment builds, then something's probably wrong and we need to check that boundary and we need to check on our hearts. Um, six is start with small adjustments, right? Instead of doing huge. Hey, I'll never talk to you again if you do this. You know, start by doing little small things like, hey, uh, you know, I don't, I don't appreciate you calling me at. Oh man, my dad would love this, but my dad used to call me when I was in college at like seven o'clock or six forty-five on his way to work, and of course, I was never awake, and he would just do it relentlessly. Um, and now it's a joke because obviously I'm up every day way earlier, and so I'll call him, and he's like. Uh, you get me back, you know? So we have to be able to say, Hey, listen, I love talking to you, dad, but I'm not up and you're waking me up and I have a different lifestyle. Could you call me at like eight o'clock instead of six forty-five? Um, and so it's those small adjustments. It's not getting into the nuances of everything. Um, and then lastly, right. We have to practice self-compassion, meaning if we don't keep those boundaries, if I don't tell my dad what I need, if I don't ask my sister for what I need and then they step all over me, instead of beating ourselves up, we have to learn. We have to say, Hey, look, I'm practicing. I'm, I'm getting to know how to do these things. Um, and it's going to take some time and some adjustment and it's not going to just happen overnight. And so those are kind of the, the boundaries and attachment styles that I wanted to talk about today. So moving on. So I wanted to talk about that because man, that's, that's decently, I mean, it's hard in general, um, to keep boundaries, it's very hard to do that in relationships. It's very even harder to do that when we have bad attachment or unhealthy attachment. We haven't worked through it. So one, we have to work through that attachment style, and two, we have to learn what the boundaries are in our lives that are being violated and how to keep them. Okay. The reason I'm talking about that today is because it brings me to the idea in the in the concept of of borderline adult borderline narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and I'm I'm talking about this because. It's low on the statistic scale of people you have to deal with supposedly, but I see it all the time in my office from people coming in and saying, Hey, we, we worked on attachment. We worked on boundaries. And yet these particular people in my life keep stepping all over them. And none of the things you're doing, you know, none of the normal things that I suggest work. And so then we have to st- you know, we have to say, Oh man, um, maybe I need to figure out if this person has something, you know, different. So there's a great book it's by Randy Krieger and it's called stop walking on eggshells. And, and I've had people work through this book, um, a lot and, and just my, I've worked through it myself and it has been, you know, transformational in my own life and in people's lives. And so it's great. And so a lot of what we're going to go over right now is from that. Um, there's an article online that, um, a therapist did that I read a long time ago. I don't remember who it was, but so I just kind of summarized, um, so when we live with someone who has the outward acting type of borderline or narcissistic personality disorder, you know we learn to tolerate ongoing oppression by a very ab- abusive bully, and so we we're used to people just oppressing and, and and harping on us and yelling at us and talking down to us, and that's not normal. Well, it's normal. It can be normal in these situations, but it's not healthy, and we get adjusted to that as kids, and and we end up thinking it's our problem, and it's so it's so extreme and so outward and so extra that you believe it and you start to doubt yourself and so you know i felt that way in some relationships that i've had in my life um where i feel like people kind of use me as a punching bag for years um, and i didn't realize that that was a lot about them and not about me and so i grew up trying to learn to navigate and figure out who i was and my worth and then i'd have peers or i'd have adults or people in my life you know, saying, no, that's not you, you know, you're X, Y, Z. And they were so confident in that and so manipulative in that, that, that I doubted what the majority of people in my life would have said. And I would believe that one comment. And so we see that in like social media or even like the podcast, you have a thousand good comments, people telling you you're doing amazing. And then one person's like, oh, I didn't really like that. And you listen to that one person, right? That one person has this huge impact on you. And so if that's happening in your life, if you can do 99 things right, but then one thing happens and you, and somebody didn't like it and you spiral, you might've had a borderline or narcissism narcissistic person in your life speaking into your life for a very long time. And again, the lesson is that has a lot to do with them. And so we're going to break that down. Um, you know, we can experience them as very powerful and frightening. Um, and so we learn to kind of go to great lengths to dodge any of the bullets. They're kind of shooting at us with their words. Um, And then we start putting in, you know, tons of effort to please them. um, But it's really futile and it doesn't work. Um, We can become big people pleasers in this way. And, you know, the reality is, is that it it never works. And so, you know, as I've worked as a therapist, you know, and just a person, you know, I figured out that a lot of underneath a lot of this perceived authoritative, you know, monstrous behavior the people that have borderline personality disorder, they have this profound fear of abandonment, and they have feelings of fragility and anxiety. So they're really, really fragile internally. Um, you know, these people they always kind of respond as the victim, as if they're being treated unjustly, um, because the reality is is that their self esteem, their their who they think they are, is shattered, and they've been through trauma. They've been through this attachment brokenness and failure. They have no boundaries. And so what they tend to do is they project their own feelings of worthlessness onto us. So they feel insecure. They feel unworthy. They feel unlovable. Um, And so they accuse everybody of treating them disrespectfully or unlovingly or harshly. And it's because they think that everybody thinks like they do. And so they project onto everybody, Oh man, he's doing this. That must mean he's doing this because he's trying to get me or he's trying to make me feel less than when in reality, right? They feel that already. And so they always feel like they're right. And why is that? Because they truly believe that they can't be wrong. It's their only way to cope with self doubt and shame. So they feel, you know, they, they, they can't take responsibility. Um, and they typically, right, with a borderline or narcissist, they, they're they they're not just doing it to you. There are people at work. There are people that are, you know, at church. There are people in their community that are the quote-unquote bad people who have insulted them or slighted them or they've treated them unfairly. The problem is you don't pick that up until later, and so you've become a part of the the cycle of feeling responsible. And so in my therapy practice, excuse me, I hear, like I said earlier, I hear tons of stories about this from people, you know, trying to, you know, deal with these challenges and struggle with somebody who's outwardly acting. And what I mean by that is they, they're yelling, they're screaming. There, there are some that are, you know, the conventional type, which is like more inwardly focused and they're needy and self-hating. But these people, these outwardly acting borderline narcissists, they are very aggressive and very loud and very, you know, projecting on everybody else. And so... um, it it, it can, they can really be profoundly needy and anxious and easily wounded um and they're chronically fearful of acknowledging their weakness so they're also the people who literally never take responsibility for anything so they can, they gaslight you they you know something will be happening in your life and your and and they just will not apologize there's never a sincere i'm really sorry i was wrong no matter what happened i should not have yelled at you i should have not called you those names i should not have said that about your character because let's face it, they're not saying small things. They're saying very, they know what to say and how to say it. Um, and they're very harsh with it. And so one of the quotes I love is it says, you know, um, while they masquerade as a giant, they feel like a kid living in a world of Goliaths. And so that, that's just a beautiful perspective to when you're dealing with somebody who's a true narcissist and borderline personality, who hasn't, who's blowing through your boundaries, who, you know, is not, is not caring about what you said and you're doing all the things that your therapist is telling you, or your pastor's telling you, or your friends are telling you, but no matter what you do, they just blow through it and and they act like a giant, right? They, they stomp around, they're angry, they're loud, they're big, they get, you know, really aggressive. And it's really because they, they're scared. They feel so small and they feel like everybody and everything is so much bigger than them. And so our experience of walking on eggshells around them is very accurate right it it's it's reflective and descriptive of their tormented inner self right so their internal self is so fragile that they project that because they're actually brittle and they're actually easy easily breakable just like an eggshell and so if you have somebody in your life that you're walking around feeling like man everything I say and everything I do is going to be a landmine or a bomb it's usually because that person's internal state is that way but they project on you confidence and and ego and, and, you know, charismaticness and they're always right. And they're aggressive and you're always wrong. And, you know, you're an idiot. And, you know, that's really because they're projecting onto you all their inner stuff. And so um, the reason they do that though, and the reason they don't take responsibility is because it's, if they take a little bit of responsibility, if they apologize, then the whole house of cards falls down right they they can't take responsibility because it's too threatening to their inner trauma, and so typically what happens is if you try to get them to take responsibility and and you get them in a bind where they have to, then they will throw a huge fit like a very tiny kid. They will yell and scream and stomp and kick their you know bite their gnash their teeth and 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 it's because that's where they are developmentally, and so we call that splitting and addiction and splitting with trauma. You know, that's their defenses and, and they have that deep rooted trauma um, that they've never ever dealt with before. And so you're just getting the brunt into that. This doesn't mean, of course, that our strategy to living with this person should be to meet their needs. Now, I want to say this clearly. In a normal relationship, I would say, no, you need to try to help meet their needs. You need to validate them. You need to you know, listen to other podcasts that I have on that and, and meeting people where they're at. But if you experience this with someone, if you've experienced these things, then you cannot meet their need because their needs are endless and they're internally generated, right? Making it impossible for any of us or anybody else for that matter to to cure them with love and attention, no matter how well we intend it. So what happens is, is we, we think they're like a quote unquote normal person. And this is not to downplay them. This is to say this is a clinical issue. But if we have somebody in your life who we think, oh, this is normal, this will work. And it never works. It's because this person has a specific diagnosis and needs specific help. And your normal stuff is not going to work with it. So no matter what your actions are, right, they remain fixated on real or imagined unforgivable insults or slights. Right, so it's helpful to remember that you know this might be a spouse or a parent or a boss, a sibling, a friend, but the three things that these people are centrally concerned with is, one, what they feel people did to them that was unnecessarily mean, hurtful, or thoughtless. Two, what they believe other people did not do for them that they feel they should have done. And three, times when they feel that someone in their life hasn't done enough for them. And so they they just go on and on in this like cyclical cycle of these three kind of primary concerns. Um, And there's no way for anyone to satisfy that because their discomfort comes from inside. And so no matter what you do, it's never going to be enough. So I know that we've a lot of us have tried to please these type of people. And we know that it isn't helpful in managing the relationship. It's not good for any of us psychologically, physically, emotionally. It diminishes our self-esteem. It is self-denigrating and only invites further abuse. We see this over and over again. So what do we do about this? So I'm going to run through some some steps here that he gives that, that um, are super helpful. So instead of looking at them and trying to focus on fixing them, look at ourselves closely in our behavior Make a, an inventory of you know our dysfunction and our stuff and then try to temper and control that when we engage with this person, right? We, that's our own therapy, our own work and knowing our own boundaries because we cannot control them. Two, if you have to be around them and you're around them, try to speak into their life. Be genuinely and positive and loving when it's calm and peaceful. You know, this will build somewhat of an alliance. um, Hopefully, over time, that's not easily shattered. In my relationships, I've had to do that a lot, and it's taking a lot of time, but it's worked. And now there's sort of a bridge in between me and those people that allow us to have trust and um, and you know, an alliance that isn't easily breakable. Um, Three, let your family member know that you have, that you're on the same team. So use we statements. So this is very helpful. You know, I know we're both upset right now, but our relationship is important to both of us, and we will get through this together, right? That's very reassuring to them. If you start saying you do this and you act like this, or I feel this way, they can't tolerate it. But if you if you we statements, if you speak as if we're on the same team, it can help. Four, build strength in the relationship by planning shared activities. Right, so if they're not abusive to the point where you can be around them, try to do some joint activities that are light and very, very short. Five, negotiate boundaries so that they're not experienced as barriers. So this is a good one, right? So if they wanna come stay at your house, for example, right, here's a good quote. It says, I appreciate your offer of letting me stay in your home when I come to visit from out of town, but I'm much more comfortable staying in a hotel. You're very hospitable and generous to wanna share your beautiful home, but you know me, I'm weird about my own space. I don't want to disturb anyone. My weird habits of staying up late, watching TV, snacking in the middle of the night. I'm just much more comfortable not imposing this on you. And it feels better for us. So you have to reframe with them that, uh, that you know, it's your weirdness. It's your strangeness. But that's still setting the boundary. It's not giving in and doing what they want. And then six, be careful with jokes, man. They, they cannot handle the slightest kind of poke or joke and they will blow up. Um, you can't make it like, oh, you know, I know my sister's a favorite child because they can't handle it and it will blow up and, and you know, you'll get an assault with all this rage. Seven, and man, this was the best tip that I, out of all of them for me. It's counterproductive. <laughs> this is really hard. I could get emotional talking about it. It's often counterproductive to share your feelings, opinions, and advice with a borderline narcissist. When you give them advice, they take it as a narcissistic assault And your advice will most likely be met with a barrage of raging contempt. And that is so true. If you have somebody in your life that you're sharing stuff with and they never validate it, they never hear it, they never respond to it, it's just going to beat you up. And so if this is a person who's not getting treatment and they're not getting help, you cannot share your personal needs, your personal desires, your hopes and dreams with them. And that's heartbreaking if that's a parent or a best friend or even a spouse you're going to have to find other outlets to do that because they're not going to hear it if they're not getting help because they need skills. They need to be you know, involved in understanding what you need and they can't do it. If, if they're struggling with this disorder, um, use creative postponing. So, you know, if, if they email you something provocative or text you something, wait and then write, you know, like, Hey, I think you emailed me, but I can't find it anyway. Uh, to say, Hey, and tell you, I love you and hope you're well, you know, speak soon. You know, something that's kind of pushing it away and not dealing with the, you know, provocativeness, provocativeness of it. You know, if you try to take that head on, it's going to, it's going to blow up nine. Remember what you see is what you get. Cease making any effort to change your family member. We all need to remember that the only person we can change is ourselves. Trying to change another person only makes our self-esteem plummet because it always fails. And then lastly, empathy is the most important tool for managing the anxiety and fragility of our family member, right? Our normal reaction would be like, man, they're such a miserable person. They're a terrible person. I can't take it anymore. But remember that the behavior is miserable and mean, but it's due to their overwhelming anxiety and their internal fragility, right? So if I think of these people, right, it's like you think about the way uh, to manage while mood swings in a kid, Right you think about them as a little kid internally, you see their inner child and their trauma instead of this big, scary bully that they, they are. So if you want to look this up, you know, some of this is on, it's a, it's um, asking, I mean, uh, let's see, stop, stop walking on eggshells. Um, The author is Randy Krieger. So that's what I got today. It's a quick one. Um, I'll be out next week. And so we'll get back to it the week after, but i'm so thankful that we're they're here that we're doing this stuff i hope it's helpful like i said i've been asked to do more of just me talking and teaching on some stuff so i'm going to try to do that once or twice a month and then have guests the rest of the time man i i appreciate everybody listening and everybody following and and tweeting and commenting and all the things you guys are doing to support our practice um to support Clint davis counseling and integrative wellness we got a lot of good stuff coming up um we are putting together some trainings and some book, you know, looking at a book and looking at some video series as we can put together just to continue to try to educate and, and share the, the knowledge that we have um, with our community and with the world so that we can all get healthier and we can all kind of make this stuff that we know uh, more uh, palpable and, and manageable. Um, it can be kind of a normal lingo in our households where we have emotional intelligence and emotional health. So if you're out there dealing with this stuff, please reach out. Um, you're not alone, you're not isolated. There are ways to deal with people in our lives who are this abusive. We can depersonalize it and not take it personally. It doesn't say anything about you when somebody else is unhealthy, right? If somebody's being abusive and saying something negative to you, remember that healthy pre- people don't talk like that. So don't give that any validation. Don't think less of yourself because somebody's talking to you poorly. If somebody's telling you you don't do your job or you're terrible at this or you know whatever it is, you, you know you're selfish. You're you're unhealthy. You're ridiculous. Healthy people don't communicate like that. So they're not in a state to be clear and healthy. That doesn't mean you don't have to change or there's not some responsibility you can take. But don't let that say something about your worth and value. You're, you're loved, you're valuable, right? People see you. And if you have people, if you don't have anybody in your life that it, that's loving on you and, and valuing you and seeing you for who you are, you need to get new people. You know, go to church, come to therapy, find some connection with somebody. Because I promise you, there are people in the world that are good people, that don't see your worth and value based on what you can provide for them or give to them. Not, they don't expect you to be perfect and to be able to, you know, take care of their emotions and feelings at all times, right? That's real community. And so I, ch- I challenge you, if you're listening to this and you've been listening to all the stuff we've been talking about over the last 30 episodes, man, do the work. And if you've done the work, if you're out there, and you're like, man, this is great. Yeah, I've done this. I'm working on this. I know this. Then push other people. Love on other people, you know, pull them into your community and your connection group you know, get uncomfortable, right? As long as you're not in danger, you know, get uncomfortable with people, have somebody over for dinner, have somebody for coffee, like ask them about their childhood, ask them about who they are, you know, start to have those hard conversations um, because it's so important to healing. It's so important for people to see where they come from and to rewrite those narratives and rewrite those stories. I mean, one of the, I'll end with one of the beautiful things about Jesus and the stories in the Bible are that, you know, the way Jesus leads and teaches is how the world works. It's, it's uh, where the, the narrative world narrative world, and the um, objective world meet. It's, it's these things that we know that are stories. When we hear them, we see them, we know they're true. And then it's the things we can prove. And Jesus just is amazing in those narratives of going, no, this is how this is supposed to work. You're supposed to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute. You're supposed to help the widowed and the orphan. You're supposed to give the guy the shirt off your back. You're supposed to do all these things. But if we don't have a healthy concept of boundaries, if we don't know our worth and value, then we end up taking, like many people do, the rich young ruler and going, oh, well, then we all should have nothing. We should all be in poverty because God asked us to give away everything. It's like, well, no, God asked him to do it for a specific reason. No, you don't have to give every single person. If somebody walks up to you like, let me have your car. You don't give them your car, right? But with boundaries and attachment and and good spiritual health and, and looking at what is God telling you to do, then maybe you do give up your car. Maybe you sell your car and you get a, a you know a Dave Ramsey car. and You drive it around, but that frees you up to be able to give to a missionary once a month or serve at the, your local shelter or whatever it is. So, I love you guys. I'll get off my, my soapbox and my tangent. All right. God bless you. Have a good week.